Welcome to the Commune Podcast. My name is Jeff Krasno. We are not over fat, we are under muscled. This is the mantra of today's Commune Podcast guest, Dr. Gabrielle Lyon. Dr. Lyon is the author of the new book, Forever Strong, a new science-based strategy for aging well. For too long, we have adopted Machiavellian diets that focus solely on calorie restriction to lose weight. Well, how's that working out for us? Well, I can personally attest that these punitive diets keep you on a weight yo-yo. Now, you might initially drop weight through calorie restriction, but chances are you're also losing valuable muscle. Then your body metabolically adapts to your new caloric intake, and too often you fall off the diet pony and gain back the fat without the muscle. Dr. Lyon is the founder of muscle-centric medicine. In our conversation, she makes the case that the key to health and longevity is not weight management, it's muscle management. As she explains how we should not be worrying about how much we weigh and instead focus on muscle mass. So here are some of the big ideas that we excavate. The myriad benefits of building muscle, including muscle as a metabolic sink, muscle as an essential amino acid reservoir, muscle as an endocrine organ, and muscle as a confidence builder. We talk about the importance of protein, essential amino acids, and muscle protein synthesis. How much protein should we be consuming for our ideal body weight? When should we be consuming protein? And what are some of the best sources? Then we confront the conundrum of can we lose weight while also building muscle? And what is the proper protein consumption as a percentage of daily caloric intake? How do we measure body composition? And we touch on the importance of rest and hydration. And of course, what we should be doing in the gym, balancing resistance training and cardio. So this was a fascinating conversation full of actionable information. But before we dive in, we are so grateful to those of you who write us reviews on Apple Podcasts that we created an offer just for you, 30 days of free commune membership. That's all access for a whole month. Just scroll down to the review section and tap write a review. Then email support at onecommune.com with a screenshot of your review, preferably a positive one, to receive your free all access for 30 days. So without further delay, I now present to you, Dr. Gabrielle Lyon. Okay, Dr. Gabrielle Lyon, so great to be with you. Welcome to the Commune Podcast. Jeff, thank you so much for having me. Yeah, we're connected in just a constellation of ways, but we've never really had a conversation. Um, so I've been looking forward to this one. So it's just a, a delight to be with you on the second day of 2024. Yeah. Um, and uh, I think that's a great backdrop for our, our conversation. So just at a high level, like I was telling you before we jumped on, you know, your philosophy around muscle-centric medicine has been central uh, to my journey and really just changed the public conversation around weight loss and body re recomposition and the importance of muscle. So we'll have a treatise on muscle today, hopefully in this conversation. 
Um, and you know, while the information that you're bringing to the fore is, is evergreen, is applicable at, applicable at any time of year, here we are at the top of the year, and undoubtedly there are many, many people uh, adopting protocols uh, connected to resolutions um, to undo some of the overindulgences of the holiday season. No doubt. Um, I, I, know, I know that I, I'm guilty of uh, plenty of merriment and traveling and, and maybe eating too much around the edges and having a glass of wine or two. So um, as people try to fulfill these re resolutions in the new year and, and get into shape, what are some of the most common mistakes that, that people are making as they're trying to lose weight? Yeah, I love this question because quite frankly, there's two major common mistakes. And the first one is actually mental. And then the second one is physical. The first one being mental mm -hmm. is that people think that they are somehow going to be inspired and motivated to begin training or embark on a new way of eating and that that in and of itself will re remain consistent. And nothing could be further from the truth. You potentially may never want to go train. I still try to talk myself out of it every day. I'm fully <laughs> aware that I will be doing this, but the reality is, is execution must take over. So there is a mental component to the roadblocks or obstacles as we transform our lives and our bodies. And then of course, the second component to potentially mistakes that we make from a wellness standpoint as it relates to skeletal muscle is not training hard enough. Um, and we can mm. discuss the, the way in which we should train for optimal aging, for longevity, for quality of life, and then under consuming dietary protein, which protein truly is the black sheep of the macronutrient family. And if you mm. cover the mental, understand how to eat and then train, you're gonna do pretty well. Yeah, yeah, thank you. I mean, I think we've generally understood health uh, at least as it relates to obesity as a weight issue, right? But you're, you're really reframing that conversation. Can you, can you pull on that thread for a second? Certainly. Um, and this really goes back to my fellowship. And if I have a moment, I would, I would love to share this story because I think, Jeff, in our careers, all of us, we have an aha moment whether it's that you wake up with visceral fat or being pre-diabetic or not feeling well, or a provider may interface with a patient that just changes everything. And I was at Washington University doing a combined fellowship. I did a fellowship in geriatric medicine and obesity medicine. During the day, I would see geriatric patients, which could range from individuals that were end of life, that were in nursing homes, that had fallen, that were dealing with dementia or frailty, and early mornings and in the evenings, I was doing, I was running an obesity medicine clinic and or doing obesity medicine research. Hmm. I fell in love with this one participant, and I think that that's in part one of the reasons why I'm so driven to share this message. And she was a mom of three in her mid fifties, just the best personality. And we all know a woman like that, we'll just call her Betty. And she put herself last. 
It was all about her kids. It was about her husband. It was about doing for everybody else. And she struggled for the majority of her adult life chasing body fat. Did Jenny mm. Craig, did Weight Watchers, you name it, she did it. She struggled with the same 20 to 30 pounds for decades. And the rub was she did everything that the medical community had told her to do. She ate less, she exercised more, she followed the food guide pyramid. And I imaged her brain and her brain looked like the beginning of an Alzheimer's brain. Mm. And, uh, you know, for me, I was seeing patients in the dementia ward, you know, they have dementia units. And I couldn't help but think that we contributed to this, which we did, because over the course of her chasing this body fat issue, she destroyed skeletal muscle mass. And we know right. that the healthier your skeletal muscle mass is, the better your survivability, the better your cognitive function, the challenges with obesity, which begin in skeletal muscle, really create um, dysfunction of the brain. And that's exactly what I saw. And I went back mm. to my colleagues and I went back to the literature and really the recommendations was, again, doing everything that she had been doing. I felt responsible and I felt that if we have an appropriate question that is being asked, then inevitably we find an answer. And just like Betty and all these other individuals that had been chasing obesity, we've been chasing obesity for the last 50 years, that if in fact it was an obesity epidemic and obesity was actually at the root cause, you know, Jeff, you and I talk a lot about root cause medicine, then by simply addressing that, we would have solved the problem. But the reality is we don't have a or an obesity epidemic what we truly have is a midlife muscle crisis. And mm -hmm. until we switch the conversation to focus on skeletal muscle as the pinnacle of health and wellness, we are going to do what we've always done. We are going to continue to repeat the past. Amen. I love it. Uh, as you were talking about Betty, I couldn't help but self-identify as Barney <laughs> in this conversation. Yeah. Because, you know, I, I grew up as a, a chubby kid and then um, I had massive, well, I wouldn't say massive. I had significant weight fluctuations kind of through my adult life. And for me, it was always, uh, kind of, you know, that extra 20 pounds of kind of abdominal fat. And I would go, you know, I'd get super resolved and I'd go on diets that were generally focused on caloric restriction. And I would see some success, quote unquote, from a weight loss perspective over a short period of time. But like many others, I would yo-yo back. I'd put that weight on. And then at that juncture, I would have no muscle mass um, because I wasn't focusing on, you know, the things that you so articulately outline, uh, protein consumption and resistance training, among other things. So I'm sure this is a phenomenon that you see fairly often. All the time. It, I saw it yeah. so much that I knew that until we shift this conversation and we create muscle-centric medicine, that people don't have a chance. You know, we are really fighting for the masses. The majority of individuals are either overweight or obese. 50% of the population exercises. Only 24% meets the daily recommendation of both exercise and resistance training, you know, in a week span. 
the epidemic that we are up against until we actually can change the narrative, we don't have a shot at. And yeah. why is the narrative so important? And you know, you probably have people that are either physicians or providers listening to this and thinking, well, you know, is a narrative important in medicine? And the answer is yes, because a few things happen as humans. Number one, if we repeat something enough, we believe it to be true. And that mm. has happened with obesity. We have repeated over and over and over again that this is the root of our problems, so much so that we haven't stopped to question, is that actually true? Because if you go back and you look at the literature and you look at the data, things like insulin resistance, things like cardiovascular disease, things like Alzheimer's, the things that will actually ultimately kill us begin in skeletal muscle decades earlier. In fact, you can have derangements in metabolic markers, things like insulin or glucose, before you become overweight. You can have issues, and this some of the earlier studies were done out of Yale. They saw 18-year-old healthy but sedentary college students have insulin resistance. Insulin resistance, just to frame it up nicely, is uh, the pancreas is an organ that secretes insulin. Insulin is a peptide hormone that moves blood glucose out of the um, blood into tissues. And it's required for the utilization of glucose, typically. And this problem with insulin resistance, meaning you need more and more insulin to manage your blood sugar, creates all kinds of issues. And when we begin to think, what is the root of these things? It begins in skeletal muscle. Before yeah. you have cardiovascular disease, before you have any pathology of metabolic derangement. So if we can focus on skeletal muscle, doing the things required of it, then we can change the trajectory of how we age. And not only that, but if we can appreciate skeletal muscle from a different perspective, not just looking good, but truly all of the um, health benefits that it outlines. I mean, it's an endocrine organ, meaning when you contract yeah. skeletal muscle, it secretes things. This is wild. The, yeah, that was a, a huge um, aha moment or, or moment of satori for me when I heard you talking about that for the first time, that, uh, that there are these molecules that are secreted by muscle called myokines, right? The yeah. secretome of, right. Of, of muscles as an endocrine organ. Can you talk a little bit about those molecules and, and some of their yes. impacts? Yes, and this is yeah. wild. There are, so first let's discuss that skeletal muscle is amazing for looking good and looking good naked, everyone wants that. And <laughs> it is your metabolic currency, meaning it is the site for glucose disposal where the carbohydrates that you eat go. It is a site for fatty acid oxidation, which I'm sure we'll talk about. It is a site as an amino acid reservoir, you know, if your um, older parents or parent um, stopped training or was bedridden, et cetera, your body will pull from the amino acid stores which make up muscle. Skeletal muscle is also an endocrine organ, meaning it secretes hormones, it secretes peptides that act systemically, that act locally, that act within this tissue itself. And 
when you think about skeletal muscle, it secretes myokines. Myo meaning muscle, kine is uh, again, a peptide, like there was a, a big uh, information boom with cytokines, right? We all heard about cytokines and the inflammatory right. reactions that came from macrophages and the immune system. Skeletal muscle has its own secretory units, and these are myokines. The most, and there are hundreds, the most famous myokine is interleukin-6. Interleukin-6 is secreted in response to exercise, which is so cool. And a lot of the early literature and really more of the current literature is based on endurance type exercise. There is some evidence for resistance exercise. Again, it's been around for potentially 20 years or so. That's still really new science. That is still mm -hmm. new in understanding skeletal muscle as an endocrine organ. When you think about thyroid or cardiovascular, it's, it's still considered new. So when you exercise, these myokines are released like interleukin-6, and it actually contributes to how you utilize your substrate. How do you utilize your carbohydrates and fats? People mm -hmm. typically thought, which is a change from what we believed, the change is people think, well, you're just utilizing energy when you exercise, which again, you are, but the influence of these myokines actually help leverage the utilization of these fuels. So it's not just the exercise, it's actually what the muscles are secreting. The other thing that myokines do, and interleukin-6 does play a role in this, is it dampens the immune response. When you think about high levels of immunity, we think about things like interleukin-6, TNF-alpha, interleukin-10, maybe interleukin-15, et cetera. Mm -hmm. These are considered to be inflammatory when they're released from cells of the immune system. However, when the same, inter when the same interleukins are released from muscle, they are then named myokines. And these myokines, while say the interleukin 10 released from um, muscle is different than the interleukin 10 released from cells of the immune system. What this does is it actually dampens an inflammatory response. It helps us hmm. regulate our immune system. Where could that be important? Well, think about a lot of autoimmune conditions, whether it's rheumatoid right. arthritis, whether it's Hashimoto's, you name it. There's, there's again, hundreds of autoimmune diseases but exercising skeletal muscle plays a role in treatment for this reason, because it modulates our immune responses. And I, I could mm -hmm. go on and on. There's, uh, of course, BDNF, which is brain-derived neurotropic factor, influences release from skeletal muscle, also other interleukins that are released or other myokines like capsaicin B or irisin, which then impact the brain and stimulate the brain to then release BDNF. I mean, there's so, so many, but I think the big takeaway is that if you do not exercise and you do not contract skeletal muscle in a meaningful way, you do not secrete these myokines in a significant or meaningful way, which also means it is a voluntary choice because skeletal muscle is the only organ system we have direct control over. I cannot tell you to have your heart rate beat at 62.3 beats per minute, but I can say, please 
flex your bicep, or please extend your index finger. And this becomes very important to understand that skeletal muscle has been so underappreciated and that the influence that it has on our brain, on our inter-organ crosstalk. So we talked about just a handful of things that these myokines do, but they interface with our fat cells, they interface with our liver and our pancreas, you name it, they're interfacing. It's almost like picking up, um, you know, that game of telephone. It's almost like that. This communication right. where it is just so, um, it's like a symphony. It is all related. I often refer to this era that we're living in as the age of agency as it pertains to medicine. Because, you know, there was a half a century at least where essentially we thought um, that our fates were predominantly determined by our genes. You know, that, okay, we have two presentations of the APOE4 allele. Oh, we're all going to get dementia, you know. And yeah, there are, certainly are genes that predispose us to certain kinds of conditions. But for example, with skeletal muscle, like you say, we have agency over whether or not we exercise them or not. And as you know, you're discovering, uh, and other people are discovering that these have direct correlations to things like cognitive health. Oh, yeah. That for example, like we used to think that our brains were essentially frozen, our neurons stopped. Um, uh, we, that we couldn't develop neurons after the age of 25, right? And that, you know, we're just essentially, there's a descent for the rest of life in terms of cognitive health. Well, we found out, no, actually that's not true. You know, you can grow new neural connections and you can grow new neurons. And these proteins like BDNF are a part of that and that they're actually related <laughs> to how you move your body. It's just amazing, it's right? Amazing. It's just a, it's a fascinating time to be to be alive and to be on the cusp of, of, of this kind of information that really empowers people, yeah. um, which is, this is what I find really about your work, that it's um, really punctuates your work. Um, I often think about it kind of like the human potential movement, like psychology mm -hmm. prior to Maslow and, and Martin Seligman and all these people is all about like, what's fucked up with you. <laughs> <laughs> and then these people came along and said, no, let's focus on what your potential is, yeah. like what's good about you yeah. and, um, and where, you know, we can step into and fulfill our, our greatest potential. And I think that's kind of where we are. You're the tip of that spear yeah. um, with medicine. Well, I, I really appreciate that. You know, it, it came out of necessity. I really had an aha moment. And, um, you know, from my perspective, I really uh, was so lucky and am so lucky to have mentors. And I don't know if you know this, but my godmother was the group before Mark Hyman in functional medicine. So I don't know if you know who right? Liz Lipsky is. Okay, I didn't know that. But no. Liz Lipsky was one of the original functional medicine. When they decided that they had to call functional medicine something, they got together a handful of people and she was one of the, those individuals. Oh my God. And, um, you know, from my perspective, I, I do think that this is a little important because you hear a lot in the media and a lot with the discussions regarding physicians that they're not trained in nutritional sciences and that they're trained in a very algorithmic way. All of that is true. However, 
there are some physicians that are trained in nutritional sciences. I happen to be one of them. And that training allowed me to think in a different way that was a bit outside the box. So I, uh, my godmother was Liz Lipsky, is Liz Lipsky. She's a PhD in nutritional sciences. And then I fell into the mentorship and I'm still mentored by a gentleman named Dr. Donald Lehman, who mm. is a world-class protein researcher for the last two decades has mentored me and discovered a lot of the nutrition mm, positions I don't know, or mechanisms, you know, I, there's many different ways in which you could say it, but some of the nutritional sciences and the ways in which we think about dietary protein, he discovered. And I was so lucky enough to, and I'm so lucky enough to be mentored by this individual. And I had done my undergraduate in nutritional sciences, and then of course, medical school, and then I did some residencies. And then I went back once I completed my last residency to do this fellowship in nutritional sciences and geriatrics. And an interesting thing happens when you have a foundation of understanding, you can master material and then be open to different information. And yeah. that's exactly what happened. And it, it's yeah, just well, we, a very interesting experience. Well, this is the wonderful thing about science and, and biology is that it, it builds on the shoulders of, of your predecessors, right? And, yeah. and it's always open to new understandings. At, at, its, at its best, science is really just incredibly humble. And it's always just asking, you know, the question, why? And then it has a method yeah. associated with it, right? Where you can make a hypothesis and experimentation and certain forms of reasoning and deduction, and you test that, and then you observe and you gather data and you reformulate your hypothesis and you make a conclusion, and then you try to repeat that over and over again to come up with some sort of consensus. And um, and it's amazing, you know, that you've been able to. Um, you know, avail yourself of those of those mentors and, in your life. And the only reason that I bring that up is because of the noise in the space. Mm. And that is actually the purpose for me bringing that up because we can all agree that skeletal muscle is important. For the most part, everybody agrees that. Everyone knows that we should be exercising. However, then you have to then flip into the thing that 100% of people do, and that's eat. Right. You have to understand that there are particular ways of eating which will benefit skeletal muscle and um, certainly longevity. And there is so much noise in the space that that is the only reason that I think it's important to understand the perspectives of where individuals that are speaking about these things come from. Because again, mm -hmm. Perspective is everything, right? I'm a trained geriatrician. I've seen people at the end of life. Um, I don't wish that on anybody. I think that um, for individuals that have experienced that, it is a very challenging thing to witness. Um, but out of that, we can reflect back on what are the things that are important. And, mm -hmm. ult and ultimately, how do we move the needle? How do we move the needle to allow people to think and understand that skeletal muscle is an organ system that we must care for, that according to the data, you know, individuals think about sarcopenia, which is a decrease, decrease in muscle mass and function. 
think about that as disease of aging, as something that we would see in our 60s. It's not. Sarcopenia, mm. which is decrease in muscle mass and function, can begin easily in your 30s, if not before, because really? of our mm. comprehensively domesticated lifestyle. Yeah. Um, certainly, you know, you see it, it seems more prevalent visually, um, in older people. Um, and, you know, clearly as you lose muscle mass and then you, you know, risk these, uh, you know, cataclysmic events where people fall and then, Terrible. you know, they can break a hip or something like that. And then you look at the rates of decline after a, an event like that. And they're just, um, they're, they're not good. Um, so there's every reason in the world to to care about this. I mean, more specifically for me, and you know, you you touched on it briefly, was the importance of muscle as a as a glucose sink or kind of for metabolic function. And I think this is something that I'm trying to trumpet loudly because of the prevalence of metabolic dysfunction in our culture. Uh, you know, I've, I've seen different rates, you know, it's like 88% of people are metabolically dysfunctional. I've seen 92% of, you know, people, but certainly, you know, half the country is diabetic or pre-diabetic. So for me, as I have mentioned on the show and to you before we got going, you know, I was very much in the pre-diabetic range, kind of borderline diabetic in terms of my fasting blood glucose. And I adopted a number of protocols to start to get that under control where I saw the biggest and most effective regulation was when I started doing resistance training and changed right. my diet on, on, around developing more skeletal muscle. So can, can you explain like why, yeah. what's going on there? Uh, first of all, well done. Well done. Thank you. Um, <laughs> and I, I do think that it's important to point out that no matter where you are in your journey, you can always build muscle and become stronger. People will say, mm. oh, in your 70s, you can't. No, you can. You can always improve. And again, skeletal muscle is the site of these challenges, these challenges with prediabetes, diabetes, because the way an individual can think about skeletal muscle is think about it as a suitcase. You open up a suitcase and you're going on vacation for four days, but you're, you pack for 30. Can you imagine trying to pack a suitcase for four days, but you decide you're going to bring enough clothes for 30? This is something that I well, do. I do have three daughters, so, <laughs> oh, so you yes, just, I can't do this routinely. It. I was just thinking, you know, <laughs> yeah. I kind of do this routinely. Yeah. yeah. And <laughs> Good metaphor though. One can imagine that the suitcase can only hold so much. Everything else is either not going to, it's just not going to get into that suitcase. It's going to be spilled. It's going to just be everywhere. It's going to be all over the floor. And, uh, you know, the packing job is going to be a mess. This is what happens to skeletal muscle. Skeletal muscle, this is the site for glucose disposal, the carbohydrates that you eat, the primary site, aside from fruit or fructose, the primary site for disposal is skeletal muscle. Now, if you are not exercising and you are not creating a flux and you are not emptying the proverbial tank of utilizing this energy, the carbohydrates and the foods that you eat have nowhere to go. And ultimately what happens is you see a rise in blood sugar, you see a rise in insulin, and the quality of the skeletal muscle becomes marbled. 
over time. It looks like a mm. ribeye steak with a bunch of mm. fat marbling rather than a filet. And again, for simplicity's sake, um, you know, I'm, I'm speaking about the highlights of it, right? It doesn't, there's all kinds of things that happen, but to really understand it from a high level view, there is overconsumption of carbohydrates without utilization and emptying this proverbial suitcase. These carbohydrates have nowhere to go. And ultimately you begin to develop fat within this tissue, which if you continue down this road, you change the quality of the muscle, it um, becomes more fibrotic, you might have a deposition of other uh, substrates and things in it versus the muscle, which you need. Why does that matter? You mentioned being pre-diabetic and when we think about muscle, you have to think about mitochondria, which is the site of oxidation and utilization of um, substrates, of fuels. There is a ton of mitochondria in skeletal muscle. The way mm -hmm. in which you have healthy mitochondria is that you have to have healthy muscle. If you choose to do nothing about your muscle, you decrease the health, capacity, volume of mitochondria. It would make sense that if one cares about good blood sugar regulation, which everybody does, then you have to take care of skeletal muscle. One of the things that we see why a hip break or a hospitalization or being written for bed rest is so catastrophic for people is because it destroys skeletal muscle. So mm -hmm. what happens is individuals, even if they don't change anything about how they're eating and they were able to maintain their blood sugar and their insulin and their triglycerides on a particular diet, but all of a sudden rapidly lose skeletal muscle, there is a potential for extreme metabolic changes, mm. not because of the diet, but because they no longer have the muscle, the healthy skeletal muscle to be able to function as a metabolic sink. Mm. And I, I think that that's an important perspective because it's, it is, it, is, it is about the food, right? We do have to address food, but the quality of skeletal muscle is important. The amount of skeletal muscle is important. And understanding that there is a rapid decrease in skeletal muscle within seven days of bed rest, whether you are young or old, you could easily lose two pounds of skeletal muscle wow. in your legs. It's like 10, 10%, 12%. I mean, it is. Yeah extreme. Yeah. yeah. And what happens is as we age, we go through these catabolic crises. It becomes mm -hmm. more difficult. The aging process is not linear. We think it is, but we actually have to plan for potential events. A potential yeah. events would be a fall or a sickness. And the more skeletal muscle yeah. mass you have as you are younger, the more muscle memory you create, the more capacity, the more storage you create, the mm -hmm. healthier you're myokine system is just the whole thing. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I, I've never thought about it that way. It's almost like having a savings account right. that you kind of just put a little bit away in because there could be an event uh, and, you know, that rainy day where you need to access, um, you know, in this particular cases, in this particular case, um, like you mentioned, like having an amino acid reservoir 
that your body's always generating proteins. That's right. Often, oftentimes we associate that with with the development of, of muscle tissue, but proteins could be transport molecules, hemoglobin, neurotransmitters, enzymes, et cetera. <laughs> um, and your body needs uh, those building blocks and it needs to get them some in some fashion. Um, so to have that, that savings account there in your muscle seems to be a, a good hedge. It's absolutely not an if, it's a when. There is mm -hmm. going to be a point in time where you will need right. it, whether it is an infection, um, anything that increases the pressure on the body, any kind of, again, infection or what we would call a catabolic state, your body will depend on your skeletal muscle. Skeletal muscle makes up 40% of your body tissue. This is wow. the place where you are storing these amino acids, which you beautifully pointed out, do so much more than, our, than just protein for skeletal muscle. It's the requirement for neurotransmitters, for bone, for uh, hormones, you name it, any structure, protein is a requirement. So I want to go into some of the best methods to actually build muscle in your protocol. I, I want to just touch on before we we travel over that bridge around some of the kind of more, I guess I'd call them biopsychosocial elements of, of muscle development. I mean, yes, the aesthetic change um, can be gratifying. You know, we like to look good and we like to be appreciated for looking good. Um, I think, though, what I also find is that there is a psychological shift that accompanies that just around feelings of confidence that can then punctuate uh, other areas of your life. So maybe you could talk about that just for a second. This is actually, quite frankly, one of my most favorite topics. I, I don't know if you know this, but I still see patients and I take care of um, many people and those individuals have a few things in common. Um, so uh, one, they typically are very entrepreneurial in nature. They are mavericks. They are mm -hmm. really in it to change the game. And one of the things that we have to understand is that skeletal muscle is this currency. And it's this currency that's so unique. It can't be bought. It can't be sold. It can't be bargained <laughs> for. It can't be injected. Yeah. <laughs> it cannot right. be, I mean, I guess it could be injected, but you know what I mean? You're not going to Botox yeah. your way to better muscles. It requires you to become a very particular kind of person. Mm -hmm. It requires you to become a person who can withstand physical and mental discomfort. It requires you to become a person of physical discipline, not just mental discipline. There are many people that are good at business and then leave their bodies as a secondary uh, attribute. Skeletal yeah. muscle is not playing. It is something that when you develop physical, a physical capable, a, a capable body, a body that has capacity, this will translate to everything else in life. And I know this to be true. Um, a portion of my practice is elite military operators. And mm. 
what I see, there are things that are so interesting that um, you see patterns of. Again, a physician is trained to see patterns of disease. And that is an expectation that you have of any good physician. But an effective physician, and I, I say this a lot, an effective physician is able to see patterns of people. And there are mm. certain patterns of people that over the years you see that institute very particular actions and have very particular thought processes around things that you know that they will be successful in that health and wellness journey. And I'm just going to share one. And this yeah. is one that people don't really think about is they're neutral. There is a level of neutrality of going into the training or going into the nutrition plan that it doesn't have a lot of narrative around it. Even if it stinks and even if it's hard, they just do that thing because it's just part of who they are. Hmm. So interesting. Sort of, uh, yeah, there's not a great deal of unpacking or there's just a, an equanimity or equipoise to the process. And um, I mean, I, I suppose on, on some level there is, you know, this notion of kind of getting com comfortable with discomfort, I think is a key just to health in general right now, because we've created all of these evolution, evolutionary mismatches around our kind of very comfortable and convenient lifestyle that's at odds with our inherent engineering mm -hmm. and our biology. So a sedentary life, for example, would be one of those. Yeah. And there is, I suppose, it, it, no greater or more explicit definition of like an adversity mimetic, for example, yeah, I love than that. like, you know, mm -hmm. than like tearing a muscle fiber. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I love that. having it fix itself. <laughs> yeah. You know, uh, if we don't seek challenges, they will find us. Then it's so much better yeah. to be prepared for those challenges and, and go to the challenge rather than having that challenge be some kind of physical decay. Um, don't, don't have it be that because it doesn't, it doesn't have to be. Uh, I, I really do like yeah. that analogy of uh, yeah. tearing a muscle and, and, and putting yourself through that. And again, um, it is really important to understand that there is a level of neutrality. And there's something else that I think is, is also very important is the environment that we speak about, we have a lot of discussions around stress. And again, I am privy to a very particular population that actually responds to stress differently. And when I started seeing it, and I, I could tell you a story, um, again, if we have time, but when I started seeing it, I became very curious in the literature that the rest of the world is responding to stress in this fight or flight way. And we are being taught that. And if I were to go out in the street and I ask 50 people and I, and I ask them, what is a stress response? Jeff, I guarantee you all 50 people would say fight, flight, or freeze. Did you know that there are two other documented stress responses that we don't even talk about? Okay, are you ready? Okay, yeah, this is great. There, there is a stress response called the tendon befriend, which is something becomes initially stressful and an individual will immediately mobilize to help someone else. This is typically seen in mothers where 
Can you imagine if their child was in danger and their initial stress response was fight or flight rather than tend and befriend to see what they could do for that child, how they could physically help that child. Tend and befriend releases oxytocin. It is an adaptive response. It releases serotonin. It is a very common response in women, but they're not mm. taught about that. We're taught about mm. fight or flight. Yeah. The other response is called a courage response. And a courage response is something that I started to see over and over and over again with these um, really high level entrepreneurs and these war fighters. And an example of this would be, let's say I'm going to go jump out of a, a plane. I would literally be peeing myself. I'm sure that my blood pressure would be through the roof. <laughs> it would be the worst idea that I ever had. My husband, on the other hand, would also be getting ready to jump out of the same plane and he would mount a response that would be one of courage. It wouldn't be a fear. He would be excited to do the thing and his blood mm. pressure might go up marginally, but not that much. And his stress response would be there, but somewhat mitigated. And the initial response was courage, which by the way, can totally be developed. There's MRI studies that show this and it can be cultivated. There are certain areas in the, in the brain that highlight that are, are more active when an individual is initiating courage. But the big takeaway is to understand that we've been taught about one kind of response. And that mm -hmm. response of fight or flight is what we embody physiologically. And there's data out of Stanford that when people are taught differently and told differently about their environment or the situation, that they have a more favorable physiological response. This was um, a, a, um, a housekeeper study. It's a pretty famous study by uh, Dr. Ali Crum. And the individuals that were told that housekeeping was good for them and they were so active, lost body weight, had better blood sugar regulation, had better blood pressure. There are all these markers of health because of what they were taught. And we see that and that's just one example, but mm -hmm. the big picture is understanding that what we believe about our life and the way that our training is and the way in which we're interfacing actually plays out in our physiology. And so this was a long-winded way of saying, what is it that some of the most successful people do that are successful, not monetary-wise, but physically-wise, that other people are not doing? And that is number one, they are neutral. There's no storytelling about how tired they are or how they don't want to do it or how it's raining outside. There's just nothing. It is, this is what they do and they just do it. And it might hmm. suck and et cetera, but that's, it's whatever. Yeah. The other thing is it's not just about a fight or flight response. They are completely keyed up to the other idea that stress is enhancing and that taking action and that yeah. physical action builds resilience. So I love it. This is great and really interesting and, and not anything actually I've heard you talk about before. And you may have, but I, I just obviously focus more on the other parts of your work. And this is like fascinating to me, honestly, yeah. um, because I'm really into this notion of, you know, doing hard things mm -hmm. makes doing other hard things easier. 
essentially. Um, and you know, I, I was, I'm an avid cold therapy guy. Now I've always absolutely abhorred the cold, (laughs) just like the mere sight of a snow fed lake would like send my heart (laughs) into palpitations, et cetera. But you know, over time I've been able to now kind of train myself to, you you know, withstand the cold and, 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 and the, you know, and I did that with fasting and I've begun to do this with more resistance training. And what you find is, is that, you know, these, these areas of discipline and getting essentially comfortable with discomfort, um, begin to actually populate other parts of your life such that challenges or, or, or events that might otherwise stimulate what you call the more kind of traditional stress response, mm-hmm. the fight or flight response, actually appear more as challenges. They're enhancing. Stress is enhancing and necessary to build resilience. Yeah, a hundred percent. So cool. And to become less fragile uh, as as people, you know. Um, and I, I so appreciate you letting me mention this because yes, muscle centric medicine is crucial, you know. I created it, I coined the term, but there are other components of muscle-centric medicine that are b- above and beyond the dietary interventions, the disease prevention, and the physical prevention. Um, and that is a mental component that cannot mm. be denied. That it mm-hmm. is the ultimate, you know, I wrote this book, Forever Strong, and the and these mindset understandings you know, as a physician, you get to peer into people's lives. And mm. I've been doing that for 20 years, <laughs> and which is a long time, that you see thousands of patients and these, again, these patterns emerge. And then the bigger picture becomes how as a society, as a community, do we hold ourselves to standards that mm. we drop the idea of goals, that our way of life becomes a standard of being, that becomes one that is all encompassing of physical and mental strength. And what does that afford us in response to that? And that is ultimately, people ask me, what is the key to longevity? The key to longevity is actually discipline. Yeah. Okay, well, let's maybe segue slightly into, um, you know, how we go about building muscle. And um, obviously, there's a strong nutrition component to that. And then there's a strong um, exercise component to that. So maybe we could start with nutrition. Sure. Um, You know, what should we be focused on to uh, build muscle as it pertains to nutrition? Yeah. Nutrition is really important to building and maintaining body composition. So there's the skeletal muscle hypertrophy aspect, and then there's the quality of weight loss aspect. One would have to first determine their goal. And again, you had mentioned that your goal is hypertrophy. What do we know that is critical for building muscle? Building muscle is um, number one, something that we can always do. The tissue is very plastic and we need a input so that we can make a physical adaptation and we need the building blocks 
aka amino acids, to then lay down the tissue, which is skeletal muscle. Um, resistance training is, and there's a whole continuum. There's a wonderful paper. It's called the loading recommendations of muscle strength, hypertrophy, and local endurance. It's a re-examination of the repetition continuum. I think it's a wonderful paper for your listeners. If you guys want to check it out and the lead author, author is Brad Schoenfeld. Um, and again, there, it's this idea of how do we create enough, enough stimulus to then change the physiology of the tissue. Resistance training is well established. It is an effective intervention for many of the things that we are talking about, like sarcopenia, like um, insulin resistance, diabetes, etc. cetera. Um, again, very, very important to understand. Why do we do resistance training? We do it to increase muscle strength, muscle size, and local muscular endurance, the amount of time that we can um, train. Now, there are typical loading recommendations, and I think that many of us have heard that there is this continuum from strength to endurance. Strength would be these lower rep ranges, whether it's one to five uh, rep max or eight to 12 repetitions. Um, and then endurance would be 10 plus, maybe 15 plus, let's say 15 reps, uh, repetition, repetitions per set. Um, so if you were going for strength, it would be uh, one to five uh, repetitions per set with 80 to 100% of this kind of like maximum strength. But not everybody's doing that. And is that necessary <laughs> for strength and hypertrophy? It really depends on where you are. If I were to make a general recommendation for a listener who has not done any kind of activity, I would say you start with eight to 12 reps of a body part and you do that. Um, I'd love for people to hit 10 sets over the course of a week, would be wonderful. Could be five, it could be 10, but in an ideal world, Individuals will be training three days a week. Um, again, if the goal is hypertrophy, there is a continuum whether they can increase the amount of reps. Uh, but just for argument's sake, we'll say eight to 12 reps. We will say hit each body part twice if you can um, and make it easy, three days, three days a week. But again, what you're going for is stimulus and you should also track your progress. Um, because exercise, and I've thought about this a lot, it's very challenging because diet is so easy, uh, and diet is so easy. And I realized that we have to, you'd asked me about diet first, but I went into exercise. So okay. we'll circle back to diet, but yeah, yeah. the biggest driver of hypertrophy is exercise. It's not diet. The biggest driver yeah. of hypertrophy, the biggest driver of skeletal muscle, the biggest driver of, um, of that is going to be exercise. Exercise is going to have a, the biggest influence in overall homeostasis of your body, in overall disease prevention because of many of the things that we have spoken about. Um, again, so that is one way to start um, for strength. Oh, were you yeah. gonna say something? Yeah. Can I ask you, so are you, I mean, I've seen you on your Instagram, <laughs> you're, 
I would say all in. Um, yeah. You're doing weightlifting. Yeah. You're doing body weight exercises. You're doing resistance bands. You're doing isometric training. Mm-hmm. You're you're really covering the entire gamut of what might fall under resistance training. Um, where where would you say kind of just to start? with that you know i you i assume now have worked up to a place where you don't you don't necessarily like need a trainer i do i do everybody thinks that i've been training for decades i -hmm. still use a trainer i actually have a coach i train at a place if you guys are in houston i train at a place called sigma gym carlos is my my coach he does not let me off the hook i bitch about it every day (laughs) um you have to understand the kind of person you are And are you somebody that is externally motivated? Are you someone that, and there's very few people that can actually go to the gym and perform at a particular level in isolation. Yeah, yeah. So I am not one of those people. I like someone there pushing me because it's it's better for me. Yeah, Um, absolutely. I mean, I, I tend to be kind of like a solo warrior. And, but I find that the, the downside of that is sometimes I'm just kind of a wandering around Correct. the gym a tiny bit, like looking at different things that I might do no. and then sort of going back to my defaults, which is like, okay, I'm a pull-up guy. I do my pull-ups, but then that's really kind of at the expense of working the, you know, multiple muscle groups and et cetera. So a more effective way uh, what I'm hearing is that, you know, you should really be tracking. You should go in with a plan. Yeah. Cause you're, you're training, Jeff, you're training to be better at life. You're not training to be better at exercise. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. What are yeah. we training to prevent? We are training to prevent a fall. We are training to increase and keep mobility, right? The worst thing that anyone could do is stop doing the thing. And we see that happen all the time due to injury, due to, um, anything, but, you know, time restraints, but the, I strongly suggest nobody do that, right? You, you have to mm-hmm. continue to train. So if someone were to just begin, and yes, I do all kinds of things, all which fall into the category of quote, resistance, pick things. Number one, if you have not been doing anything, pick body weight, do body weight, do things that are functional, do a push up, do squat, one of the things I loved, I think it was in the very conclusion of your book, which was like actually structure your life to make it easier to adhere to the program. So what I did in my house is that I put up multiple pull-up bars in doorways. So it's just like, I'll be after dinner or something, I'll be walking by that doorway and I'll be like, oh, okay. That's amazing. <laughs> you know, boom, 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 boom. And it's just like, I, you put I it inside that. of your life. Um, I love that. And uh, and that was a good little hack. That, and that let me ask you this. Book. You're stronger than you've ever been, right? I am, yeah. yeah. And now yeah. the thing is, is we should think how strong, what is the next thing? How many pull-ups are we ultimately going to do? How many push-ups? What is, what is the next thing and where are you going? You know, mm-hmm. I would then challenge you to do something that has a rotational aspect, right? Whether it's a chop or... Um, yeah, some kind of a movement that has rotation. Because uh, again, what are some of the things that individuals do that continue to predispose them to injury is that they, they train in one plane of movement. 
So mm. training with some kind of rotation, you'll always see me doing some kind of rotation. You'll always see me do, um, once you've kind of graduated from bands, you need to then begin to think, what are functional movements? And that would be a kettlebell carry. Uh, mm -hmm. I think that that is very, very helpful. We carry heavy things. And actually an overhead press, a kettlebell overhead press. You travel, mm -hmm. you put things overhead, you put groceries away. Many people injure themselves when they're going to pick up to put something overhead. People throw out their back. People yeah. uh, injure a disc. But if you continue to train these things, then you won't have that. So if we were to start, if you are listening to this saying, you know, I really need to get stronger, you'll start with body weight. You'll pick a handful of things that you'll do, whether it's squats, whether it's a plank, whether it's, um, again, you can pick it. And I, I put a whole bunch of these actually in my book. And then you'll move to a band or you'll move to carrying water jugs. But again, you're creating an environment where you are become better at, you're becoming better at life. And then when you're yeah. ready, you move to things that really push you. And again, also learning a new skill. I do not want you to go in the gym and you know, some of the trainers might say, oh no, you can totally do this. I am coming from a place as a medical professional who, have, who has watched people age and watched them go to the gym and do the same thing over and over again, the same leg press, mm -hmm. the same pull down that has not protected them from injury. Learning a new skill, learning something dynamic, being able to do some kind of plyometric movement to catch themselves when they fall, to maintain some explosivity, some of it doesn't, mm -hmm. you know, and that could mm -hmm. be sitting and standing from a chair for time, but really thinking exercise as not a chore, but a necessity and a necessity to live a better life. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Amen. Um, what I've, what my resolution is in terms of like trying to do the things that aren't naturally, that I'm not naturally inclined yes. necessarily, or maybe I'm naturally inclined, but I haven't done them is it com combining strength and mobility. There's this kind of movement around a kind of primal movement yes. and watching some of these particularly women who are just like so beautiful to watch on Instagram that are like, you know, just muscled, but also so flexible and moving so gracefully on, you know, a lot of the floor movements and things. So that's what I'm going to try to do. We'll see, <laughs> see if I can get my body to, to, to cooperate. I think it's a, I think it's um, great. I also think it's smart and intelligent to, you know, I was, I was talking to my friend, I, we have a, a training group on Sunday and we're all starting jujitsu. This guy oh, nice. is super, super fit. If uh, do you know, Greg Scheinman, he knows every, I swear this guy knows everybody. Mm -hmm. Um, and he just started jujitsu and he's 50 and the guy's in the best shape of any 50 year old you'll ever see. And he's like, man, you know, my joints and my shoulder. So how do we, how do we continue to grow without injuring ourselves and, and use mm -hmm. motions that could benefit us, you know? Mm -hmm. yeah, what is your balance between resistance training and cardio aerobic training? What a great question. Um, I am probably, I mean, I heavily skew towards resistance training, but I will do some cardiovascular activity. So let's think about how are we going to 
think about training the cardiovascular system. We can train the cardiovascular system with longer endurance, zone two training, which is seems to be all the um, the rage right now. Uh, VO two max, you know, which is a measure of oxygen uptake. We know that um, VO two max, uh, a good VO two max, people have uh, better outcomes. Do I train? in longer uh, longer endurance types activities, I don't. The majority of the training is four days a week of some kind of resistance training. One day will be heavy. One day non-negotiable will have some kind of high intensity interval, which actually improves mm. endurance capacity. Mm-hmm. And I recommend that everybody do something like that. So there's ways to improve cardiovascular health? Because again, what are we going for? Are we going for the activity of doing it or are we going for the outcome? I would argue that we are going for the outcome, not the activity. Because individuals could do the same zone two training and not see improvements in their VO2 max and not necessarily gain benefit. Is there benefit to movement? Are we secreting myokines, et cetera? Yes, but the measurable changes, and I say this cautiously, but I think that you'll get this, Jeff, come from when we really put in effort. So I put in effort. There's two days a week where one day is just terrible. Um, and then <laughs> uh, on a Sunday, you know, I, I kind of sprinkle it in there. Carlos does it for me, sprinkles it in there. Um, so two days a week where I'm putting in pretty significant effort. But mm-hmm. it's not. But you asked me about cardiovascular. I might train two days a week on the Peloton. Today mm-hmm. I did it, 30 minutes. Okay. Yeah. And, and when you're on the road, because you often are on the mm-hmm. road, um, are you bringing anything with you or are you just doing body weight stuff on the floor of your hotel or what are you doing? These are great questions. Um, number one, if I have an early flight, I will wake up at four to train. I wake up at four <laughs> before I get on the plane. Um, wow. So I will do that. And then my hotels always have gym. So that is one of the deals that my team helps me with. We have a gym. If I'm staying in a hotel, there is a hotel gym. I don't care if it sucks, as long as there's a gym. It could be one piece of equipment, but there is a gym. Um, I will go to the gym in the hotel. I will still keep on my training. Or, I mean, it doesn't matter. And I schedule training for the day I'm back. So even if I'm traveling back late and it's a day I'm supposed to be training, you better believe that training session is already scheduled. Good for you. Here's why. Because yeah. it's, it's just a standard of execution. It's not a goal. I'm not yeah. going for a goal. There's a standard. This is a commitment that I make. If I am teaching people about it, I better be doing it myself. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah, you've made a covenant with this. That's really <laughs> what it is. It's like a, it's a non-negotiable adherence. It's, it's amazing. I think it's great. And yeah. Jeff, I'm a mom of two very little children with a husband who is in a surgical residency. You have three girls. I have <laughs> oh, a two God. and a half year old and a four and a half year old. Wow. I remember when my wife, Skylar, when our girls were small, that was her biceps were never more ripped because she was carrying one <laughs> That's in each hilarious. arm. Like I love that. that. I was like... Yeah, she, and she has a proclivity towards ripped biceps. So you, you guys will have to have a. Uh, I would love it, but here uh, the reason I say this is because for the moms listening, you can always find an excuse not to do it. But I include my children. My, I include my children in training. They come to the gym with me. We are doing family activities that are physical. 
and it habits are much more difficult to break. Frameworks of thinking are much more difficult to break later on in life. My children grow mm -hmm. up knowing it is part of life that we are fit and that we are strong and that we keep commitments. It is going to be much more, it's going to be much easier for them as they navigate life. Not that life is ever going to be easy, but they are going to have a mental and physical capacity to interface with, with life. So let's circle back to nutrition for a second and, and I'll frame it to you this way because I think I'm not alone uh, here is that I guess three or four years ago, I was tipping the scales like north of 200, two, 206 or something like that. And so then my challenge was losing weight while simultaneously gaining muscle. Now, I didn't really know that at that juncture. So my initial focus was just really losing weight. And that involved a lot of caloric restriction, a lot of fasting protocols and some other protocols. I did lose a ton of weight, but I was severely under muscled at that juncture. And then I could gain some weight back, but primarily muscle. What and but but that became like a giant Rubik's cube for me, which is like how do how do I calorie restrict while also getting enough protein intake? What a wonderful, so just wonderful, useful pull question. This apart. Yes, wonderful, yeah. useful question. Number one, pro, uh, dietary protein. The numbers shouldn't change. The percentage of protein, you know, typically. When you think about the current recommendations, it is based on the minimum to prevent deficiencies in 18-year-old males. The current recommendation is 0.8 grams per kg. This has not changed for many decades. And this number is the minimum to prevent protein deficiencies, not optimize health, not do any of those things. It will not support aging. It will not support recovery. And one must understand it was based on high quality proteins, animal-based proteins, and young men. This translates to 0 0.37 grams per pound of body weight. For example, mm -hmm. if an individual was 115 pounds, then the protein, the minimum protein recommendation would be 45 grams to prevent deficiencies. Fast forward to what is more optimal more optimal, and there, it, this has been shown in multiple different groups, is double the RDA. Double the RDA, which would then bring us up closer to um, 1.6 grams per kg or closer to 0.7 grams per pound of body weight. This is much more optimal for aging. And notice the RDA would be considered a lower protein diet. That is the minimum to prevent deficiencies. So an optimal protein diet would be doubling that. Optimal protein diet doesn't necessarily make it high protein. Again, there's a lot mm -hmm. of people talking about a lot of different things. And really, if we look back at the history, then we can think about in an intelligent way that is actionable. Double the RDA will support body composition changes, will support proper aging. More ideal, in an ideal world, if you are looking to lose weight, your protein recommendation should be around one gram per pound ideal body weight. 
if you are 150, 200 pounds and you would want to be 150 pounds, then you eat for 150 grams of protein. The other thing yeah. is as you calorie restrict, your protein number does not change. So if we were to calculate that an individual is, let's say 200 pounds, but they want to reduce their caloric intake by, um, you know, they could do it very slowly, maybe it's 10%. Those changes should not come from dietary protein. Dietary protein remains consistent, regardless of total calories. So for example, if you are, um, if your target calories are 100 and, or 1500 calories, and you are getting 150 grams of protein, but you want to lose more weight, and then you reduce it to a 1200 calories, your protein intake does not change. Everything else changes. Dietary protein is necessary to support tissue. Why is dietary protein so important? Dietary protein is very fascinating, and it is not just one thing. We think about protein as if it's one thing. It's not. It's 20 different amino acids. If you look at the back of a label, you'll see carbohydrates. Carbohydrates will have fiber. It will have sugar. Fats will have, um, I don't know, saturated fats, trans fats. And then you get to protein and it just says protein. Completely misleading <laughs> because there are 20 different amino Sorry. acids. Each protein has various effects on the body, has various digestibility, meaning how fast it gets to the, the gut, how fast these amino acids and what percentage even get into the bloodstream. So. When we are eating for weight loss, dietary protein at 1.6 grams per kg, that's the minimum, stays there. You can go higher, but I would not go lower. Now, the next part to understand about protein is what is high quality protein? Protein, high quality protein is defined as the amino acids present in them. There are nine essential amino acids that must be obtained from eating. You have to get them from the diet, the body does not make them. And those essential amino acids have various biological roles. They are not interchangeable. I'll give you a couple of examples. For example, leucine is responsible for the stimulus for muscle protein synthesis, which is if you care about sarcopenia, if you care about diabetes, if you care about protecting the health of skeletal muscle, this is the amino acid that triggers the incorporation of amino acids into skeletal muscle, it is a biomarker of health. There is threonine, which is important for mucin production. You name it, there's phenylalanine for dopamine, et cetera. So when we think about the quality of protein, I always recommend high quality animal-based products, regardless of the narrative that you're hearing. Um, we have been using high quality proteins for decades. They are highly nutrient-dense foods, have highly bioavailable zinc, selenium, iron. There's so many children that have stunted growths outside of our country because they are low in iron. Um, beef, lean beef is wonderful. There's fish, there's chicken, there's turkey, there's whey protein, there's dairy. There's On the flip side, there's lower quality proteins, and these would be uh, plant-based proteins. They are different in their amino acid composition. You certainly can see the difference between quinoa and a chicken breast. 
You would need six cups of quinoa to equal a small chicken breast based on these amino acid profiles. In a perfect world, it's an incorporation of both. It is not solely a animal-based product diet and it's not solely a plant-based diet, but it is an incorporation of both for the goal of having enough fiber and having enough uh, high quality protein to protect skeletal muscle and to protect aging. Um, the way in which we dose protein is important, especially as an individual ages. And my recommendation is between 30 and 50 grams of high quality protein at the first and the last meal of the day. I, again, I cover all of this in my book. It's a lot to think about and there is some nuances, but this is a super easy thing to do. One gram per pound ideal body weight, you break your meals into at least two high quality meals and then see what the rest shakes out to. Mm. Yeah, so I had a lot of fun with this part of your book. Uh, and because I'm a bit of a geek, I turned it into an Excel sheet and I <laughs> used your um, your counsel here to create a little formula based around weight maintenance, oh, cool. uh, desired weight loss, and desired weight gain with the amount of protein staying neutral throughout all of that. And then you just kind of type in your ideal body weight over in the left-hand column and sort of just like would spit out what I needed uh, or anybody could use it. But it was really interesting. Um, and so I, I weigh about 160. That's a good weight for me. I'm about six feet. Um, and, uh, so I was looking like, how do I get 160 grams of protein? Mm -hmm. I was more or less going one for one, as you suggested, be from a, a macronutrient ratio perspective between protein and carbs. So I was getting 160 grams of, of protein, 160 grams of carbs. And then what would that mean for fat? You know, given mm -hmm. that fat is more caloric, has you know nine calories per gram, to meet an overall calorie uh, threshold that kept my weight somewhat neutral, and that was about twenty four hundred calories per day, and so that ended up being about one hundred and twenty four grams of fat. Anyways, it was very instructive, and then um, based upon that, I actually typed into ChatGPT, "Give me a uh, a daily program." using the lion protocol based on this weight. Oh my god. And it spat out for me like a couple of day sample days wow. of what I should eat. And obviously you've done enough work in the world that the That's pretty cool. that the uh, <laughs> that ChatGPT picks up on your work. Yeah, but <laughs> was it accurate? It, it, did it do it did it do a good Well, job? that's the thing. I don't know. You know, I will send it to <laughs> you privately to and you can say you can see. But I think that um the moral of the story for me was, okay, like, I'll just be honest, it's probably hard for me consistently to get one gram per ideal uh, pound it of is. body weight. Yep. And so I really had to like, I have to be very intentional in order to achieve that. Um, and it's not certainly not impossible. And it's I on the higher end, I, Jeff, it's on the higher end. So you could potentially go lower. You have the op yeah. I mean, you do not have an issue with appetite regulation. Where individuals will do better at the higher end are if they um, really have issues with satiety and really challenged by overeating, then the higher end of protein yeah. is great. 
um, right. you don't really have that, you know? So you could get away with 0.7 grams per kg, or I'm yeah. sorry, 0.7 yeah. grams per ideal per, body know, weight. Yeah. Around yeah, per ideal body weight, yeah. Um, well, and I found since I've adopted more of a lion protocol style diet that my satiety has generally just gone up in general. So what is that relationship between protein and satiety? It's one of the really well-studied uh, impacts of dietary protein. It's because it changes some of these gut hormones and it also influences, you know, not just CCK, but it also influences the brain's response to food. So it signals satiety centers, which is very interesting. Is that right? Yeah. Huh. Wow. Um, and then I suppose there's also the thermic effect of protein, which is it's more consumptive from an energy perspective, just to break it down to like pull the nitrogen off of it, et cetera. So you're, even though you might, a, a gram of protein might be four calories, the net effect might be like three or three and change or something, and right? Now there's variations in the literature. And the reason that I believe that there's variations in the literature and same with my mentor, Dr. Lehman, is that the thermic effect of protein is actually not from the nitrogen. It is really? actually, yes, okay. yes. It is actually from the stimulation of skeletal muscle because that is a highly oh. energetic process. So you will see in the data various amounts of this thermic effect of food or the thermic effect of feeding. And, you know, it might be 20%, it might be 30%. And the difference is, is that when you dose dietary protein at a minimum of 30 grams per sitting, per meal, you'll stimulate this machinery. But if you were to test protein at a lower sub at a lower threshold, for example, 10 to maybe 20 grams, it will not have the same impact on skeletal muscle, which then ultimately skews the information. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, I want to ask you about, um, okay, so I'll just set it this way. It, there's some kind of like longevity. There's so much talk about longevity in general, right, out there. And there's a lot of different um, points of contention. <laughs> There are so a lot of folks that talk about mTOR, right? Mm -hmm. So mammalian target of rapamycin is a particular pathway that's anabolic. It seems to be stimulated by protein. It's sort of yin and yanged against AMP kinase, which is sort of this pathway for repair that's often very associated with autophagy and the breaking down of dysfunctional proteins into their amino acid building blocks, et cetera. Does the consumption of protein at the at your level, do you worry about that as it pertains to stimulating mTOR too much at the expense of kind of repair and autophagy processes? That is another wonderful question. And I'm so glad that you brought it up because when we think about mTOR, which you mentioned is uh, mammalian target of rapamycin, we have to appreciate that it's in all tissues. It's in the liver, it's in the brain, it's in the pancreas, it's in skeletal muscle. And depending on the location, these, um, this complex is sensitive to various things. For example, in the liver or the pancreas, mTOR may be very sensitive to insulin or very sensitive to carbohydrates. In skeletal muscle, it is exquisitely sensitive to leucine, which is a protein. Mm. That is a very important differentiation to make because somehow individuals have pulled this, um, that 
dietary protein stimulates mTOR, yes, and so does exercise in skeletal muscle. And it's a necessary to help the health of skeletal muscle and to build muscle. One would have to ask, well, then is it dangerous or deadly or bad for you? No. Food, calories, insulin, all of that can stimulate mTOR as well outside of skeletal muscle. But for some reason, people, and I don't, I don't know exactly why, but it has really been targeted mm -hmm. at skeletal muscle. So the answer mm -hmm. is, do I worry about the protein stimulation and mTOR? I don't, especially mm -hmm. when you consume it in a bolus amount, you really wanna stimulate this machinery and then stop. We don't really know how long it goes for. There's a whole uh, host of other things that happen in this pathway, whether it's EIF4, there's just a whole host of things that happen. But you stimulate it and then you wait five hours or again or longer and then you have your next meal. Five hours is, is probably reasonable. It is necessary and important and that will stimulate the health of skeletal muscle as will exercise. Now, this idea that chronic stimulation of mTOR is a bad idea, I do believe that that is a bad idea. I do not believe that that is caused by dietary protein. I think that having small meals of carbohydrates will stimulate mTOR all day long. Remember, mTOR mm. is not stimulated by dietary protein unless it hits a particular amount. So this idea that okay. dietary protein is the culprit is, is in fact not true. However, do I think that if someone has cancer, is there benefit to minimizing mTOR stimulation? I think that there, that is probably true. And would it be dietary protein restriction, potentially methionine restriction? Um, but then the next question someone would ask is, what kills people in cancer? People, um, there are many people that die from cancer cachexia, which is skeletal muscle mass wasting due to the catabolic effects. Mm. Again, mm. it's a very complex topic. Um, yeah. 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 We would depend on what kind of cancer and uh, yeah, I mean, it's very complex. Yeah. So do you pay attention to the individual essential amino acids? Like for example, you mentioned leucine. Such a smart question, Jeff. Yeah. Generally people are liking, like you said, they look at the label yeah. they say, oh, it's got X grams of protein. Or are, are you worried about it at that level of specific, or not worried about it. Are you looking for it at that level of specificity of like, I want to get X grams of leucine or spendanalanine or whatever? I think that that is a, brilliant, brilliant question. And nobody has asked me that. So that is, first of all, a brilliant <laughs> okay. question. Um, very insightful. It would be extraordinarily difficult to do that. Many of the foods have not been categorized, especially the new foods that are coming out. The limiting amino acids are uh, lysine, leucine, and methionine. There is something called the EAA9, which is how they begin to categorize um, essential amino acids. There will be something called the EAA3, that the goal will uh, for this will be to score proteins, just like mm. um, you know you can go to Whole Foods and you'll see a number like this is from zero to hundred. This ranks here. That is how potentially I think that it is going to be brought to the public. I think that that is a genius question. 
much of what I believe that we are seeing from low muscle mass to obesity, I believe one could think, is that a leucine deficiency? Again, saying a leucine deficiency is a very strong word, uh, and clearly it's not deficient, but again, there is short-term deficiencies, and then there's long-term deficiencies. Short-term deficiencies that lead to major problems would be scurvy. Long-term deficiencies could potentially be underfeeding these certain amino acids over time, but they are not exhibiting acute issues. Again, that's a brilliant question. I'm not sure exactly where we stand on that. Do I look at the ratios particularly? No, because I have a diet where I know how much protein I'm getting. Um, so I, I have a sense of where my amino acids are. But again, phenomenal question. Yeah, if you're eating, like you say, high quality, like lean meats, for example, you are almost, well, you're definitely getting the complete array of essential amino acids, correct? So, yes. you know, unless you're going to get like, you're going to be a scientist or a super geek, which <laughs> is possible to <laughs> be honest be with us. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, um, maybe that's not the, the source of your, of your focus, but I, I think it's an interesting um, thing to probe, at least at this level. So. I, I think it's a brilliant question. Um, I, it's a brilliant question. Yeah. I, I think that that's actually the next frontier. Um, is going to be recognizing that we talk about protein in a very generic way when we should be right. talking about these individual amino acids. I do have concerns about the complexity, but their utility yeah. is really outstanding, the utility of these individual amino acids. I, I just don't know where it's gonna go in the future. And again, how do we bring it to the masses? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it's uh, there's challenge enough just to bring some of the more high level concepts <laughs> once we get into like yep. you know how many grams of particular forms of amino acids you know we, we might lose the the plot a little bit with folks but so you know obviously your book is making huge waves i see it everywhere um and i also noticed though that you are organizing and leading a summit oh, yes. um and uh, i wanted to just give you an opportunity to talk about that because it's a whole nother thing. I come from the event space. And so, um, and I, I've got the, the rings around the trunk to prove it. Um, so what inspired that? And maybe you could just talk to it for a moment, because I think this podcast will come out just before that time. Oh, wonderful. The summit is in Austin. I'd love to have you as my guest, Jeff, if you would like to oh, come, fun. it's August at 13th and 14th. You just let me know. You just shoot me a text. Let me know. Okay. And the goal of the summit is really uh, to touch on all the things that we talked about. It's this idea of how do we become globally strong as humans? Mm -hmm. There is a mental component. There is a physical component. We have incredible speakers, you know, from retired Navy SEALs to um, professors to uh, we have a secret, a female secret service agent who was on four president details. She's going to talk all about relationships, her name is Evie Pomporas. We have Cody Sanchez, Bedros Koulian, just Kristen Holmes. I'm sure you know Kristen Holmes. Mm -hmm. um, just wonderful individuals. And what is this about? Again, is it, it is for everybody, regardless of what level you are at, 
whether you are a physician, whether you are a trainer, whether you are someone who is just interested in health and wellness, one thing that I care very much about, and I think that you probably do too, is community. And that was actually why I wanted to do the summit was for community. That they, mm. there is one way to connect to people. And that is, you know, I have a podcast, you have a podcast and, and doing all of these things, but to connect to people and to curate a group of people that all, that all hold us to the highest standard. Mm. Yeah. I get so much gratification. I know how much work it is. So first of all, hats off for taking that. I had no on. idea. <laughs> yeah. I'm just like, <laughs> well, I think this is a great idea. And my team is like, okay. Okay. Um, but uh, yeah, I have firsthand experience there. Um, and, uh, and, you know, it, it might produce more gray hair than, than you would otherwise have expected. But I guarantee you, it's like, it, it is the most gratifying feeling uh, to be in community around shared ideas and shared values. And I, I often see that the output of these things are so much greater than the sum of their parts. Like you're going to combine everybody's wisdom and knowledge and experience, and then something comes out of the other side of that, that, you know, one didn't necessarily expect. And so that's a wonderful piece of it. And then, you know, with my experience with Wanderlust, there's not a week that goes by that, that someone doesn't tell me like, oh, I met my, you know, my lover, my business partner, my best friend, you know, at that event. And it's changed, you know, bent the complete arc of my life. And I think that's what really happens when people are in these kind of immersive in real life experiences. So, so hats off. Well done. And um, just as, you know, in general, I, I, I love your work. And I love the combination of, of sort of inspiration and information because uh, I'll get, you know, most of my day-to-day -day relationship with you is on Instagram, for example. So, you know, some days I'll be like, wow, she's just killing it at the gym. And that inspires me to get up there and do it even on days where I'm feeling maybe a little bit tired. And then other days it'll just be like, oh, wow, I've learned something new. And it'll be more about information. So you do a great job balancing uh, the two things, and you're walk you're clearly walking the walk. So that's just uh, awesome. Um, and uh, yeah, you're just making huge waves. And like I said, you're changing the conversation. So where else can people find you? And is there anything else you're just excited about that you want to let the world know? Yeah, about? actually, um, I uh, just launched a community. So we have a, a huge okay. community, which is wonderful. You can. They can go to my website and find out where we have Q&A. And again, a very engaged community is online, but I really, really love that. So we've launched the Forever Strong community, which is awesome. And people can go to my website, drgabrielline.com. I have a full remote clinic. If anyone is interested in being a patient, they can apply on my website. Of course, we talked about Forever Strong and I have a great podcast. We have lots of medical experts on that podcast especially uh, people that are really deep in the weeds. So my goal is to bring them to the forefront and have conversations with world-leading experts that can be applied to your life. Um, yeah. And then, of course, you know, Instagram, Twitter. I guess it's now called X, uh, LinkedIn. X. Yeah. <laughs> well, Dr. Dr. Gabrielle Lyon, thank you so much. The book is Forever Strong. Uh, I just finished it. Everyone should get it. Uh, anyone that cares about um, aging with strength and aging gracefully, um, I can't recommend it enough. So 
get out there and get it if you haven't already. And uh, yeah, it's just a, a pleasure to be with you and hopefully to be continued. I'd love to do it again. That'd be wonderful. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for listening to my conversation with Dr. Gabrielle Lyon. Be sure to check out her new book, Forever Strong, a new science-based strategy for aging well. Now, if you enjoy this show and would like to receive 30 days of free all access to commune membership, and why wouldn't you? Well, then write us a review. On Apple Podcasts, scroll down to the review section and tap write a review. Then email support at onecommune.com with a screenshot of your glowing review to gain access to more than 130 courses featuring the world's top thought leaders and authors and doctors and yogis all free for 30 days and while you're there make sure you're subscribed of course feel free to reach out to me directly at jeffk at onecommune.com with questions comments criticism of the constructive variety and lastly, but not leastly, I'd like to thank the folks that make this show possible week over week over week, including Jacob Lau, Megan Stone, Violet Augustine, Cooper Mall, Silvana Alcala, Wellington Gonzalez, and Ryan Tillotson. Okay, that's all from the commune for today. My name is Jeff Krasno, and I am here for you. <laughs>